Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so delighted to be joined today by Kate Zambrino. She is the author of several acclaimed books, including Screen Tests, Heroines, and Green Girl. She teaches in the writing programs at Columbia University and Sarah Lawrence College. And her latest novel is called Drifts, which just, oh, it blew me away. And it made me miss your internet presence, of course, too, Kate. <laughs> I'm really, I'm very much a ghost on the internet. I still look at the internet all the time. There's, you have a, a, a sentence. I, I scattered myself in fragments online. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, the tweets. <laughs> I missed the tweets. <laughs> you know, I love Twitter and I loved having a blog. I think once I started publishing books, I sometimes see authors respond to things a little too quickly online oh, and I was someone like that yes. and I think I miss the community I miss I miss yeah I miss Twitter and mostly Twitter and the blog although I mean these long-form blogs are not this you know the same anymore no, it's now it's more like tiny letter or which I read those too yeah but for me I really quit the internet because I just have a little bit too much of a temper. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, I'm not the best personality that to is be so online. Wise. Yeah. It's so wise. Yeah. Um, and particularly if for, for this latest book, which the entire project of which is to capture uh, um, the present, the moment, um, social media is just um, one of the ways that the moment <laughs> slides away from so many writers all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's so much part of the moment. I don't know if you read Olivia Lang's Crudo. That's a book yes. I always, I think about, I think about that almost in like, not opposition to drifts, but it's interesting. They're both responding to the present, but I really made a point almost to take social media away from drifts, even though I was mm -hmm. obviously on social media at the time I was on Facebook and, but it, it is an interesting, it's an interesting question about like Twitter and the novel or like social media and the novel and like writing and how that affects. I mean, it's obviously the internet is so much part of our present day. Um, I think I wanted drifts to be a kind of different space from that a little bit. And it really, I mean, there is enough other stuff to occupy the moment in terms of being very much grounded in your body. And certainly I've been talking to a lot of writers who've, you know, been in quarantine for yeah months and that, feeling of isolation has become more and more a part of everyone's routine writing and otherwise. I think that's one of the reasons I went off social media. Um, and my friend, Sophia Samatar, who I, you know, is kind of like my close friend who I write about in drifts. Yeah. She wrote this essay that catapult published, which is, about me, but it's about her, and it's called Why You Left Social Media, Guesswork. Mm. I think everyone thought it was about me, but it's half about her. Um, it's kind of a confusion of, um, you know, who the speaker is. But I think for me, I needed to cultivate really feeling lonely and alone. Yes. And I think 
the space of the novel or the notebook allowed me to do that. I think I, I, I had realized at some point I had stopped writing in my notebook and I think drifts is like a space of going back to the notebook. I love that. And then, and then of course the, instead of the constant internet presence, you have these actual letters from friends. Right. And that feels like a completely different way of connecting than Yeah, Sophia. Than I mean, Sophia Samatar had such a great internet presence and I miss her. I mean, a tweet from her, a deleted tweet from her is the epigraph to Driss. Um, so I loved, Ooh. I loved, yeah, I loved reading her constantly, but we, I think we did start writing letters cause we went off social media. We began to write to each other. Um, yeah. And that feels like, yeah, I mean, you connect that kind of letter writing to a very long history of writers and artists inspiring and comforting each other. It's interesting what friends I have where we're terrible emailers with each other, just like terrible and mm -hmm. the friendship only exists if I see them in person. And it's interesting, the friendships I have. I think the friendships that I really began on the blog with mm -hmm. people who had blogs and in the comment sections of the blog. I met Sophia because she commented on the blog that I have. Those friendships are easier to keep up online because we're basically, our blogs we felt were private for each other anyway. Sure. So they had that intimacy to them. So it was easy to keep up that correspondence. Yeah. And I just love anyone who's ever tried to write anything, unless, unless they are very rich, because I have spoken to people who are like, when I write, I go to a remote villa in a different country, <laughs> and like, I'm alone with my thoughts and my feelings. But otherwise, writing is about all of the distractions that, that occur when you're trying to write. It's true. Uh, yeah, I was joking. I, I feel like we have, I have such a sense of lust and awareness of people who have second homes because of this quarantine. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm still in Brooklyn. Uh -huh. I was joking yesterday was Bastille Day and I was just walking around saying guillotine emoji. Like just thinking <laughs> of like everyone who's just traveling now. And, but yeah, I think that writing is so much about money and time and space. I mean, having time and space. I've, you know, I think one of the only reasons I've persisted as a writer is I've kept up this adjunct schedule so that I have summers off, mm. which now with a small child doesn't really feel like, I mean, it feels like that time of drifts, that um, solitude feels so luxurious to me. I almost, sure. <laughs> I'm very jealous of my former self. It's kind of, it feels like a completely different self who wrote it. So it's, it's like a, it's such a fiction now, but yeah, it has so much, you know, Wolf writing about a room of one's own. It's so much, so much about money and having the time. It's such a luxury. It is. And even just like having you, you're so good at, at writing about your body and yeah, we all live, we, we are constricted to our bodies. We are not just uh, minds writing wonderful works all the time. And that is such a part of being in the moment and being human. I think that I had this like really talented English high school teacher who was a monk. He was a Viatorian monk who took a vow of poverty 
but I remember we read Camus' The Stranger, and he wrote on the board, The Truth of the Body. <laughs> and I think since then, I've, I really think part of what I'm interested in as a writer is, yeah, the body. So it's always a body who's writing. And I think, that, I think so much of writing can be disembodied or pretend that it's not coming from a body. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of dress was can one write, can I write someone who's thinking, but is also like deeply embodied and disembodied at the same time? Yeah. And even just like when you talk about adjuncting, most of the time you talk about the subway trip or the train ride that got you there and um, how nice it is sometimes to glide over that stuff in fiction, but that that's what the moment it was all about. Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in tedium and boredom. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess the key is like how to write tedium and boredom or a trance-like state so it's still pleasurable to read, right? Absolutely. And that's the key. Making the mundane feel beautiful. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's like what I'm really interested in now as a writer is the beauty of the mundane and like the beauty of the everyday maybe because like that's all I have now is yeah the everyday like I don't have travel I mean I haven't had travel for a while <laughs> you know so all I have is just trying to find something like beautiful and insightful in just the mundane and everyday experiences of one consciousness and body yeah, and, and you write about just encountering your neighbors in lovely ways and, of course, the animals you encounter in your neighborhood and, of course, your, your own dog, Janae, who I came to love from reading the book. Yeah, I really feel, I mean, if I really feel that I wanted to write about my relationship with him and my friendship with him and I think a lot of the impulse behind dress was wanting to write animal life. Still, I mean, still, I think Ginny is one of the most important relationships in my life. But I love literature that's about dogs, to be honest. <laughs> you know, uh, Singer Nunes is the friend or, you know, Eileen Miles's work or Maura Davies' work. I just, I think that it's such a, it's such a special, specific relationship. And I think, you know, Janae has taught me a lot. Tell me, tell me one exciting thing that Janae has taught you. Well, I think so much of Driss is like Janae teaching me to like be still mm. and just be in the moment. Right. And I think people say that about having small children, but I actually, I really think animals, like I think animals are so much just part, like, they don't really, they, I mean, they obviously, I have a small dog. Obviously my dog has tons of anxiety. It's weird how much my dog seems to have anxiety, but I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't overthink things, right? right. He's in the moment, he's not really thinking about death. He's going to live a shorter life, but it is about these experiences of like eating and just being together physically. Finding the right place to poop. Yes. It's very simple. So I think, you know, I, we got him when we were living in North Carolina and I was unemployed and by myself a lot and, you know, very incredibly hot constantly. And he really just became my companion. 
I just didn't know how you, you could be so bonded to a little animal. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, talk to me about drifts as a form that these are fragments of your life. It's, you know, there's a loose kind of diary frame to it all, but tell me about putting it all together. Yeah. I mean, I think I was, I was very interested in shorter forms like Clarice Lispector's Chronicas or Robert Balzer who worked so much in like Chronicles or Feuilletons. And so I had this, like, I often think really visually when I'm working on a book, and so I didn't think of like little paragraphs or little lines. I more thought about like this horizontal moving, hmm. right? The sense of these small, these passages that would be kind of self-contained and, and continue. So I think it's less that drifts came from a diary and more I was interested in like how could a work have the feeling of a day, mm. right? Have like, so I thought of them as like calendar pieces, very horizontal, very visual. And they're very digressive. Like there are, some of them are very long. And then the second half, it becomes very abbreviated and more truncated and diary-like. The um, writer, Hervé Gebert, who wrote a very amazing diary, but also write, wrote novels, he, he says in one of his books that whenever he feels most like he's writing a diary, he feels closest to writing fiction. Oh, and I think, yeah, I think there was this idea of like, I mean, I worked on the book a lot longer than the time frame that Driss is, you know, so that there's this like sure. real working over. I probably worked on it for seven years and it's over a year and a half of time. Mm -hmm. But I did want it to feel like, the movement of a life lived like how can you how can you like write time in such a way hmm. and um another thing that i love about this work is of course is that you see connections in just about everything and um that is how i think i first found you on the internet um in, in the book you write about concern of seeing connections that aren't there. And, but they're everywhere, Kate. They're, yeah, they're, I, <laughs> but I think it's certain minds who are very referential, which yes, of course you understand, yeah. right? This idea of like, you know, and my partner, John was working at the Morgan library at the time. And he would say, you know, all these people would call in and have these, connections that he couldn't quite understand i think there's always that fear of the formless that you see connections that aren't there mm -hmm. yeah i think i think i'm trying to pay tribute to a very intensely referential mind right like a work that's like a library of the mind and yeah i, I feel like there are just certain people who connect everything to other things it's a certain a certain mind <laughs> um and and i did i i feel first of all i felt horribly ill-read <laughs> when i read <laughs> but i it was it was a joy to learn more about like what rilke's life was like i didn't know anything 
Um, well, I think calling you, I mean, you're like the opposite of ill, <laughs> like your whole life is books and reading books. But I think, I think it's just about learning, like reading a work where you learn new works too. Mm-hmm. Like everyone has their own very specific library. And I think in drifts, I'm only just writing about books I just return to over and over again. It's like a small bookshelf, but like the works that were very specific to um, me. But you could, I mean, you can certainly come away from reading drifts with an entire, you know, small contained bookshelf of, of yeah. reading to do. Which it I has an read. idea. It's like fiction. I always like fiction that feels like it should have a bibliography to it. That's always <laughs> fiction that I gravitate towards. And but I like that too. I like learning about, you know, new books when I'm reading something. And I often feel very ill-read, you know, especially... It feels hard sometimes to keep in, keep on top of everything. It feels like there are some people who are reading everything and have tons of time to read and are always reading. So I feel that too. It's like that, <laughs> that lust towards, like I've never, like I've never read Proust, you know, like just like things I haven't read. Um, I mean, I haven't read a lot of really obvious books that a lot of people have read. Sometimes I feel very, <laughs> very underread. <laughs> Um, but I don't know. I, 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 I came away knowing that I have to read more Walzer and also just watch more films and look at more art and photography. It's all of these arts are interconnected in life and in your novel. For sure. But I also like it's weird when I'm watching film, like a film will become very important to me, but it'll take me months to be able to watch it. I'm more someone who like, I'll watch tons of TV, but it's very hard for me to watch a film that I know will be very important to me. Like even the Chantal Ackerman that's so huge in Drifts, it took me like a year over the time of Drifts to actually begin watching her work after her death. So I, I, I feel like the narrator of Drifts is, I mean, she is very interested in art and film, but I think she often has reading allergies too, or like mm-hmm. is just like watching their Kardashians or just watching, binge watching, crying recaps. Yes, I read lots of recaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, most of the time, it's very hard for me to read a Walzer or read or watch Chantal Ackerman, especially if I know something's going to be really important for me. It's hard for me to. I don't always want art to be like that. I don't always want to feel too intensely moved or thinking when reading something. That makes sense. It's too much. You you need a good recap. Um, I love that the narrator is a little daunted that autofiction has become kind of a trend yeah. <laughs> it's it's this is a very big surprise for me when right? Drift came out is the autofiction thing and I think I became kind of very vaguely aware it was a term a couple of years ago but it's not really a term I think about really, very much at all that it I mean it's just a, a way to put things in different boxes. Well, I think publishing has kind of grasped onto it, but I feel often the writers who are seen as autofiction seem like very different writers to me. 
like Rachel Cusk and what she's doing feels very different from like Ben Lerner or, but yeah, I guess it's, it's like a word. I don't know if it's a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing because it allows for more slipperiness between genre mm. or more of this idea that um, an essay, like that a work can feel like an essay. But yeah, it surprises me how many people are, are seeing Driss as being part of autofiction. Um, tell me, tell me about writing pregnancy. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I was on deadline for Driss for a while. And when I found out I was pregnant, which was a big surprise for me, um, I really was upset. I really thought I was going to spoil the book I was working on. I was really furious. I was really, I really, and I think, you know, one of the questions I had that I think I took out a dress because it was too like self-indulgent or it was maybe too inside, like inside, inside, where I just thought to myself, like, can someone be a pregnant Zabald? Like, is this like narrator of consciousness and literature, is she allowed to be pregnant? And I, then I began to think, well, maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's interesting that the narrator is pregnant. And I began very to be interested in that because like, I remember rereading the Argonauts when I was pregnant and feeling so grateful for it. Yeah. Like I had read it before and I, I, I really liked it. But then when I read it, when I was pregnant, I was really struck by, wow, this is one of the first narratives I've read about a pregnant person. Like really, which is crazy. Mind. Yeah. You know, and everyone talks about like, you know, the literature of motherhood now, but there's very few where the character's pregnant. I don't know why, like, is pregnancy a period where it's hard to write or is it maybe too overdetermined? But I began to be very interested in like, well, yeah, like how much fiction has been about pregnancy and also an ambivalent pregnancy like something that's like both voluptuous, but also contradictory and ambivalent. And it kind of just, you know, it, the, the constraints of my life just kind of took over and that's what the work was about. But to me, the book is not about pregnancy, but it features a pregnant narrator. Yes. Yeah. And there's no, to me, there's no solution. Like at the end of the book, she has the baby, but she still hasn't written dress and she's still <laughs> like, there's still this like immense problem for her is like, well, how is she going to write now? And I thought that was really, there was this like article in the Los Angeles review of books a couple years ago about like the literature of motherhood and had noted how few characters are pregnant. And I just, yeah, I began to think, and it's interesting, almost no reviews have touched on the pregnancy at all hmm. or like thinking about that. And, and it's, it's interesting too. I think, some people regard pregnancy in a very romanticized way. They assume pregnant people are always like very happy, <laughs> very like, okay, like this is exactly how they wanted their life to go. Or people view pregnancy as a sort of horror. Like I had one editor, a male editor of a pretty prestigious UK press who rejected it. And he's like, I just can't deal with the pregnancy. And he's like, I know this probably has to do with me. 
and like my, like my fears about like my life, but I just, I found it too awful. I was like, yeah, it probably does have to do with you. It's definitely you. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it sounds like a bullet dodged. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, and I think that, I think sometimes so many things can be issue based in like, um, reviews that come out very quick, right? Or like the first write-up of a work. But for me, writing the pregnancy was not wading into a debate, but just simply trying to write like just the honest experience of one person. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's interesting that the narrator really doesn't want to be pregnant and is pretty not sure whether she wants to have a child. And I kind of wanted to honor that ambivalence. Yeah. And I mean, the, the amount of concern trolling she is on the receiving end of is uh, like a warning. <laughs> I think sometimes people think in this like discussion of motherhood that anyone has any idea what they want. And I don't think people do. I think, I think that having a child is, um, it's, you know, it's a class-based question. It's a political question. You know, it's, it's so many things, but it's also people, people's lives are much more murky and contradictory than I think so many people really represent. And I wanted to represent a sort of contradictory consciousness. It wasn't like she suddenly became pregnant and became like pro in the motherhood. <laughs> 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 and I think, you know, I think she and I still are, you know, I think it's, it's a question of time. It's a question of space. It's a question of identity. And these are all incredibly loaded questions yeah. that I think in the space of a novel, you don't have to necessarily answer. You just have to raise the questions. No, and I, it, it fit so beautifully with, with all of the other ideas of living in your body. And this is a thing that happens to one's body. And uh, it's wild. Um, Kate, tell me um, some books that you recommend. What have you been? Oh, good. So, um, well, one of the books I recommend, um, is it okay if it hasn't been published yet? Yeah. Okay. So... Beyond Sophia, the cutting edge. <laughs> well, Sophia Samatar is my mm. correspondent, my correspondent, my main correspondent in Driss. And she has this manuscript, which has become my like, I really deeply want someone to publish it. It's, I think it's like a work of genius. It's called The White Mosque. And it's like the work that we're talking about that she's writing throughout Driss. And it deals with like, the 19th century Mennonite trek to Uzbekistan. Sophia's half um, Mennonite, half um, Somali American. And it deals with race and it deals with identity and it deals with photography. And I think the reason why editors haven't taken it on is because it's, it's just like a contradictory, interesting historical look at race and identity and religion. This is very deeply complex and brilliant text that I think, you know, is a lot like Zabald. Um, another correspondent in Driss is Banu Kapil. Mm -hmm. um, and I love her Ban and Banlu, which also pays tribute to the world of blogs and, <laughs> and the correspondences over the internet. 
Um, I also just read Heike Geisler's Seasonal Associate, which um, Semiotex publishes, which is, um, it's translated from the German and um, Heike Geisler writes about her experiences. It's a novel, but she writes about her experiences working in um, an Amazon warehouse in Leipzig, Germany. Oh, right. Of course. It's amazing. I was really, you know, I knew everyone was talking about it a year ago and I kind of was like, oh, this seems like a really, you know, interesting book and I should read it. But it's like way more of like a voluptuous literary existential work plus a really, you know, beautiful work about capitalism and time and labor. Um, and my last recommendation is I just read the Natalie Leger diptych that Dorothy is publishing. Um, translated from the French, um, The White Dress and Exposition. It's um, her other two books in her trilogy besides Sweet for Barbara Loden. And um, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. They're beautiful um, historical works that deal with gender and identity. They're really beautiful. Kate, thank you. It's thank really you, been Maris. a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure. Hi. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.